The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles or your apps, if you'll open them there. And I get the privilege of introducing uh, my dear friend, Tim Cartwright. Tim is our junior high pastor, our local outreach pastor, and uh, hated Philadelphia Eagles. So welcome him to the pulpit this morning. Good to have you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for that <clears throat> loving introduction. Um, college football weekend is this weekend. Um, anybody excited? Were you, were you happy about your team yesterday? Any uh, Longhorn fans out there? Sorry about that. NM fans, you can't be too happy. You played a Division three school. So, um, But I can't talk. I'm a Penn State fan, and we almost lost to Appalachian State. So um, that's okay. It's, it goes up and down. It's just the way it goes. So we're not here to talk about that, though. We're here to talk about John chapter 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, we'll be looking at John 15, uh, starting in verse 18. So last week we learned uh, how Jesus expressed comfort for those who he was leaving behind. Um, Gary challenged us to consider the fact that a true disciple of Jesus is one who bears fruit consistent with the gospel. And he pushed us to consider how we abide in Christ and that true disciples bear spiritual fruit. So we think about this setting in, in John chapter 15. If you think about the overall setting of what's going on, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room and he's closing out his time with them and just like if you were uh, old school and wrote a letter, or if you wrote an email, or one of those really long texts that are annoying, uh, you usually save the last part for what you feel is most important. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's saving the last part of his discourse to the disciples to really encourage them and challenge them for the future. Last week, we studied that and, and, and how he encouraged them to abide in Jesus, that they can't survive in love without abiding in Christ on a daily basis. And then this week, in contrast, we actually see in this second half of the chapter that he's talking about hatred. So you got one part, love, last week, and this week we got hatred. Of course, Gary gets the nice one, love, last week, and I get to talk about hatred. So it's going to be fun. Uh, so Jesus here is warning the disciples that when he leaves, they would be tempted to leave and go back to their old way of believing. Specifically in this passage we will look at today, we see a direct contrast from his command to love one another and the hatred that they would experience for following this command. So we see in, our, in, 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 our, in the scriptures and in our beliefs and, and, and as we study God's word, we see that there's a difference here. We got God's kingdom that's represented by love. We got the world's kingdom and the desires of the world that represent and, and bring about hatred oftentimes. And they're in direct contrast with one another. And let's look at John 15, verse 18, and check this out. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now 
They have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the reality is this in verse 18. He gives a matter-of-fact statement. Jesus gives this matter-of-fact statement that says, you will be hated if you follow Jesus. He doesn't say you might be hated or people will at times dislike you. He says, matter-of-factly, that you will be hated. He's encouraging the disciples to say, look, here's the deal. Hatred is coming if it hasn't come already. And it's coming your way for the sake of the gospel. And in the same way, us as believers, we are guaranteed that we will be hated. How uplifting is that? The reality is it's truth, but it's also a blessed truth as we look into it today. You know, it's very interesting that hatred unites the most unlikely groups. You look at the Pharisees and Sadducees who literally hated each other, But yet, when it came to Jesus, somehow, they all came together and combined in their hatred toward Jesus. But they wouldn't be caught dead together, having dinner together, but yet, their hatred was so great for Jesus that they became uh, fellow haters of the Son of God. And you see, even in our society today, whether it's at school with friendships or at work or something like that, where someone uh, gets people together and they join in hatred with an object of their hatred, maybe somebody that is like a teacher's pet, you know, or someone like that at work, you know, that is always kissing up to the boss or something like that. And this hatred comes together. It's kind of happened in an interesting way this past uh, January and February as uh, the Eagles led up to the Super Bowl. It was interesting what happened, you know. I'm, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I love the Eagles and all things Philly sports. And, and so as we approached that game, I had lifelong Cowboy fans. Not those fair weather fans that you see around everywhere, but actually fans that are devoted to their team, thick or thin, and they come up to me and say, hey, Tim, I'm, I'm rooting for the Eagles this Sunday. I'm like, what? What? I can't find it in my heart to ever say that about the Cowboys for any reason. <laughs> but there was an exception. Who were the Eagles playing? And some of you are out there as Pats fans, but most people did not want the Patriots to win. They didn't want to see Brady get another ring. And so in their, their desire and Hatred's a strong word, but in their desire to not see the Pats win, they chose to actually cheer, maybe under their breath, but cheer for the Eagles. And so it was an interesting thing that took place where there's this bond coming together because they were going against the enemy. And so hatred brings this bond together. But in verse 19, we see not only it says we'll be hated for the world, but it also says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So as in an in a opposite way, the world, if you continue to fit into its mold, the more you'll be accepted, the more you'll be loved, the more you'll be talked about in a, in a good way because you're fitting in to how Satan has designed this world to go and you're just swimming along the stream, downstream. 
And so it's a challenge for us to consider that this hatred is a serious thing, and it's going to happen as we follow the gospel. Trip Lee is a, a rapper, pastor, author, great artist. He says, uh, we should stop being so surprised, and we have to fall out of love with being cool and being liked by everybody, because at the end of the day, it's not going to be cool to really pursue Jesus with everything you have. I've been a, a youth pastor for 20 years, and as I work with students, I watch them go throughout their day, and I'll watch them in and out of, of whether it's sports or activities and things like that, and things go up and down in their lives, especially junior high kids are just on the edge emotionally, right? And I see them, and I hear them share testimonies from Impact or Mission G and other things about wanting to follow Jesus more and wanting to be more devoted to their relationship with God, and they get to this point where they start to follow him, and they hit a wall, which that wall oftentimes is friends, That wall is oftentimes people that really don't want them rocking the boat. They want them to have this religiosity, you know, where they're kind of following Jesus and it's kind of accepted in Texas still to be someone who goes to church. But don't get crazy on me. I mean, don't go overboard. Come on now. I mean, go to church. That's fine. But don't start talking to me about it in the locker room. Let's leave that there, and I see them get discouraged. I see them, even in a small way, uh, become persecuted for their faith, and they kind of fall back. And they kind of drift back into the stream and head the direction everyone else is going. And the challenge here is to say, you know, it's not going to be cool. You can only be cool so long when you follow Jesus to the point where it starts to get awkward. It just does talking about a man who came from the Father down to this earth to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life and die, that's awkward. And there's, no, there's nothing else you can say about it, but the reality is it's truth and it needs to be said. And sometimes that'll bring persecution. Verse 19, it says that the disciples were chosen. You're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. As Jesus uh, finishes up his time talking to the disciples in John 17, which we'll cover soon, he has a a passionate prayer that he gives for his disciples. Just an amazing prayer that he gives to the Father. And this is a small part of it in John 17, verse 15. says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's talking about his disciples, but it could be very easily talking about us being chosen by God to be a life that is lived for the gospel's sake, no matter what may come, no matter what may happen to us, persecuted or not, we continue to abide in Jesus and live the gospel. Verse 20, he says, uh, kind of get, brings them back to a time where he's like, kind of like a parent, like, remember what I said? Don't, you, don't forget it. Remember what I said. Verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So here he is saying, you act like me, you'll be treated like me. The servant isn't greater than his master. Whatever the master happens to the master is going to end up happening to you as well. And so it's something that he's saying is a matter-of-fact thing. And when we, sometimes we experience persecution. And again, 
the disciples experienced way more than we could ever experience, and people in this world experience it more than us right now. But there still is persecution that exists in this room that happens to us. And sometimes when those things happen, we go to God and we're like, how could you do this? How could you allow this to happen? How dare you, God, let this thing, let them speak this way about me when I'm trying to live for you. I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to live the gospel out, yet you allowed this to happen. And the reality is we should be asking ourselves, well, what do we expect? What what do we expect to happen in this situation? He promises persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a question of whether it will happen. It's a question of when it will happen because it says you will be persecuted for your faith. You will be hated at times for what you believe in. It's a guarantee. But I I want to be real clear here. I, I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about you being hated because you're obnoxious. And you always feel like you have to share your opinion with those that don't know Jesus. So I'm not talking about being hated for being an idiot. All right? Because there's lots of people out there, and it has happened to me too, where I've been hated, but it was because I said something dumb. Or I said something that was insensitive. I said something that wasn't right and wasn't consistent with the gospel, okay? So being hated for that reason isn't what we're talking about. Trip Lee says it very clearly. He says, the gospel itself is already offensive enough. We don't need to add offense to it by being jerks about everything. If Christians are known as jerks, that's really a bad way to start with the gospel. If you've got to share your opinion, whether it's political or any other opinion that really isn't in tune with the gospel, and you have to put people down that don't know Jesus, that you're not representing the gospel, you're not representing Jesus, and you're definitely not abiding in his love. And so he gives a challenge here to say, look, here's the reality. It's going to happen. You will be persecuted. But we can pride ourselves on the fact that we are hated because of our association with our great Savior and the love we can't help but express to a world that is lost. We see Paul writing about this throughout his letters, being glad to suffer for the sake of Christ. We see Peter writing in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It reminds me of Paul when he says, I count it all joy, right? And the reality is, these guys are talking about rejoicing, counting it all joy, when they know difficult times are coming, and not just little difficult times, but actual beatings and imprisonments and future death. And they're saying we can find joy, rejoice, because we suffer with Christ. This quote uh, that that, uh, we're about to read, it comes from an article that was written in, uh, in this past summer in July. Chinese authorities bulldozed the registered church building July 17th without warning to make way for construction of a new neighborhood and train station. This isn't years gone by. This is present day where... A 
group of men showed up with their bulldozers, with no paperwork at all, nothing saying they had permission to do this, if you read the article, and they took their bulldozers and ran the church over, demolished it, as the believers looked on in horror. So what gets your church bulldozed? What gets you persecuted to the, to the point that someone would just demolish a church that's been around forever? And the reality is this message of the gospel that there is a different king. The king doesn't exist in China. The king doesn't exist in the Middle East. The king doesn't exist here in this country. People that prop themselves up to think that there's some kind of authority when in reality the things they say don't really speak truth. There is no king except Jesus. And what happens to this church in China, what happens to people in the Middle East, what happens to people here is the reality is that it's the result of the gospel. You are serving a different king, a king that the world hates, and you will be persecuted for it. As Matthew Henry writes on the hatred of King Jesus, you'll have to excuse the old English, but I'll try to not butcher it. He says, the world has misdirected hatred toward Jesus. Those that hate Christ hate him without any just cause. Enmity to Christ is unreasonable enmity. We think those deserve to be hated that are haughty and froward or uh, proud, but Christ is meek and lowly, compassionate and tender. Those also that under color of complacence are malicious, envious, and revengeful, but Christ devoted himself to the service of those that used him, nay, and those that abused him, toiled for others' ease and impoverished himself to enrich us. Those we think hateful that are hurtful to kings and provinces and disturbers of the public peace. But Christ, on the contrary, was the greatest blessing imaginable to his country and yet was hated. Greatest blessing imaginable. They still hated him. Verse 21. Let's check verse 21 out here. He brings the Father into the picture. He says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You see these quotes here. Him who sent me. Whoever hates me hates my father. They have seen and hated both me and my father. They hated me without a cause, which is a direct quote from Psalm 69.4. He makes the connection between him and his father and proclaims himself in, in reality as the king sent by the father. This isn't Jesus just talking about himself as a nice teacher as someone who did amazing works and miracles, and as a nice guy who welcomed those who were outcasts. This isn't this type of religion that just props Jesus up as some cool guy and nice guy and great teacher. No, this is Jesus saying, I am from the Father. I am one with the Father. I am the Messiah. I'm the King. This isn't just uh, him having something that is on the level of other great teachers back then. He is proclaiming himself as the king equal to the father. And not only does he include the father in this discourse, he also brings in the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is interesting what he says. We're going to cover next week in more detail about the Holy Spirit. It's interesting what he says. He, he calls him a helper, which can also be translated the comforter. You have the helper, the comforter of the Spirit. And he talks about how he bears witness. And it's, I thought about this word, the comforter. It brought back memories of, of something that happened to me in my, my childhood. It was an interesting thing that, that brought great comfort to me. So maybe you can relate to this. Maybe as a young uh, person riding your bike when you're little. And you get in the neighborhood and you ride your bikes. I've been going on bike rides uh, with my son lately, and it's just been fun, like throwing back memories. Maybe that's what jogged my memory, you know, uh, riding down dirt roads and finding ramps to jump off of and things like that. And even creating ramps that definitely weren't meant to and would never be approved by any engineer. Uh, But, you know, hurting yourself and just having fun with your friends. And down the road, about half a block from my house, is a train station where people hop on the train and go to downtown Philly for work. And there's this perfect hill that goes down, and it's an asphalt hill that leads down a sidewalk to where you get on the train. But it also goes back up. When it goes back up, off to the left, there's this hill, this dirt hill, grass, that slowly over time, people before me came along and then I came along and kept carving that hill out to the point where you get down and you launch up about four feet. uh, This hill goes up and you just take off into the parking lot. Now, the parking lot isn't the smoothest parking lot. It's got gravel and lots of other items in the parking lot in Philadelphia. And uh, as you fly up, you're hoping, you know, you stay straight. You know, sometimes you try tricks or things like that in the air and sometimes mess up. And so as I got more brave, you know, launching off up this hill, you know, I get more brave and try to go higher. And as I go higher, I land and spin out into the gravel. And I reach down and look. My pants are ripped. And I look and I see blood. I'm like, oh, man. And I look down and lift that hole up in my pants. And it is a wound like this, like not exaggerating. It was this wide and about a half inch deep, and it was full of gravel. So I got my bike, which is all jacked up anyway, and I take it and walk it half a block home. I throw my bike in the front yard and and limp on into the house. And uh, that day I didn't realize, I didn't know what was going on back then, but uh, eight or nine years old, my, my dad was getting ready for a wedding. He's a pastor, and he's getting ready to do the wedding for my former youth pastor. So my mom, being a good pastor's wife, you know, is over at the church getting things ready, uh, set up for the reception. So she's not there. Actually, my dad's the only one there. So I walk in and, uh, and I'm yelling for him and it turns out he's in the, in the bathroom shaving. And my dad, he didn't have uh, a strong stomach. He's kind of weak uh, when it came to blood. Uh, I remember he almost passed out just from cutting his finger. And... Uh, so I come walking in there. The story would be amazing if I could make it up and he passed out and hit his head in the toilet and we just had, I had to call it. No, I, that didn't happen. But what did happen was he comes in. What's wrong, Timmy? Oh, I cut my leg and I'm, you know, crying. And, and I show him and, and he looks at it and he's like, oh, I could tell it might have been that situation where he didn't want to look at it too much and this is why it happened or he was in a hurry. I don't know why. But he grabs a washcloth uh, he grabs it, wets it, rubs it in my wound, throws some band-aids on it, and we head out for the wedding. 
So we get in the car, we go to the wedding, and I'm just like, all right, I guess I'm going to be okay. And, uh, and I'm heading that direction, and we go in the back of the auditorium, and, I, and to this day, I can't remember a lot about my childhood, but things that bring pain maybe help jog memories. But I remember walking in, the back left of the auditorium was my mom sitting there. It was way before the wedding was started, way before anybody else came in, and there she is sitting there. And I remember thinking at that moment that I was going to be okay. But there was something comforting about seeing my mom at that moment. Did it change the fact that this wound was this wide and that deep? And it still had gravel in it? It didn't change my situation. But as I walked in, it was this comforting situation that was happening where I sat down. My mom looks at my knee. And she never, I never heard her curse in her life, but... If she ever was going to curse, that was the moment because she was not happy with my dad. (laughs) But the funny thing is, you know what she did? Oh, wow, that's horrible. I put the band-aids back on. We went through the whole wedding. We went to the reception. Then they took me to the emergency room. (laughs) I'm I'm the youngest of four kids. That's the way they're, they're treated, you know. You youngest can associate with me, empathize. So they end up, you know, getting that Brillo pad thing out and give me a needle and scrubbing it out. It was wonderful. Six stitches. Couldn't bend my leg for six weeks. It was awesome. But the reality is this. When, when Jesus speaks of the comforter, that's a powerful thing. And when we know that he proclaimed that he was going to leave his spirit to us, that should bring great comfort. Not comfort like a false comfort saying everything will be fine. You'll never be in pain. You'll never be persecuted. Everything's going to be smooth and all this false gospel nonsense that talks about how you serve Jesus and things will go well for you. No, the reality is I was in pain. My knee was cut wide open. I had gravel in it. But in that moment of pain, the comforter, showed up. And in the same way in this persecution, when you face difficult things for your faith, that the Spirit has come and He's promised and He's alive. So He says the Spirit not only is the comforter, but He also bears witness. He points to the Savior. And in the same way, in verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You will bear witness of what you've seen and what you've heard. So here we are in this passage, just considering persecution. And in chapter 16, he finishes up in these first four verses of chapter 16. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, You may remember that I told him to you. So here he is. Jesus speaking like a father, seeing his sons with extreme persecution on the horizon and certain death. His spiritual sons have no idea what's coming. These young disciples had no clue what was about to happen. You can see it even in their lives as after he says this, where Peter denies Jesus. But they go on to one day... Be, most of them be killed for their faith. 
you look at the verse, it says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you. Imagine being the disciples in that room, like, whoever kills you. What? Wait, what? What the? No, not whoever might kill you, whoever kills you. And the reality is what happened was it was even done in the name of the Father. It was even done in the name of religion, in the name of a, a false belief. And that they would be guaranteed suffering and eventual death. So as we kind of wrap this up, let's look at a practical outcome of this. It's interesting that Peter, Peter's one who was heavily instrumental in the church as we know it today. And Peter listened to these words that Jesus said. And then he goes on to write First Peter and in a lot of ways say the same things that he heard after a number of years in ministry. After denying Jesus and being restored, Peter gives great insight. He writes to exiles of the dispersion who had settled in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. These exiles uh, were strangers in more ways than one. They were Jewish believers, and they were in foreign lands. Tack on to that the fact that they were Christians, and it made for quite a bit of persecution where they lived. And here's Peter speaking to them. He, just like Jesus encouraged him, Peter encourages these believers. In 1 Peter 2, 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He calls them chosen and precious. Go back to John 15. And you see the disciples chosen out of this world. And we can relate to that as well. Chosen by God to follow Jesus here in our seats today in this auditorium. Chosen by God. And then what goes on in verse 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. <clears throat> he says here, it's a matter of fact. They wage war against your soul. It's a matter of fact, he said, when they speak against you, it's going to happen. It will happen if it hasn't already. It's going to happen when they speak against you, though, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So he asks them, look, keep your conduct honorable. And Peter isn't talking about a list of rules and a list of like a checklist that you check off and, and do this and come to church today. And even though it was a holiday weekend, you still came and feel good about yourself and check that off and, and check this and check that, that I, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. He's not saying a checklist here. The way that we do this is by applying what we learned last week, which is abiding in Jesus. We live honorable lives by abiding in Jesus. We love others that aren't lovable by abiding in Jesus. So he encourages them to let them see your good deeds, not so they'll pat you on the back, not so that they'll say how amazing you are, but that one day they will glorify the Father because of what you've done. So it's a challenge for us to consider how we face persecution. Now, I recognize that there's a lot of fear that might exist in this room today. 
anxiety and fear over various things. And it could be coming persecution. It could be uh, what is happening in our world today. It could be, you know, a political thing or, or a war that might be coming or, or things that are happening that are disturbing in our schools and other ways that there's just fear that grips us and anxiety that, that controls us. And the question we continue to have to ask ourselves, just like we looked at earlier, is, first of all, what do we expect? When Jesus has said it very clearly, the God's Word has said it very clearly that tough times are coming for His church. Difficulty is coming. Persecution is coming. It's not going to be good. This isn't some uh, presentation to you uh, to follow something that is easy and is smooth and comfortable. When people ask me sometimes, I'll, I'll say, hey, let's go, to, uh, let's go to Rwanda together. Well, what's it like over there? Is it safe? People talk to Chase about going to the Middle East. Is it safe? Go to Galveston. Oh, come on, kids, you know, my junior high kids, come on out. Come to Galveston with me. And the parents, first thing, how safe is it? You guys in a gated community? Is it going to be all right? Is it safe? Since when is the first question in our relationship, in our, trans, our translation of the gospel, to first seek safety? To first have to ask ourselves, is it safe? Is it going to be okay? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to be okay. You follow Jesus, it's not going to be okay. You will face difficulty. You will face persecution. But it's the most glorious, amazing life you could ever imagine. It's not safe, but it's amazing. And so we think about this, and as I thought about that, I was talking to Danny, our executive pastor, and he reminded me of a story that he heard or witnessed over in Ukraine. Celeste Musakora, great friend of our church, great friend of ours who is from Rwanda, went over to speak to the pastors in Ukraine. And he was encouraging them with some words and challenging this idea of safety, challenging this idea of, of how we follow the gospel and difficult times come and what do we do with it. And he was telling this story about a friend of his who back in the 90s when after this genocide happened in Rwanda where one million people were killed, that God called Celestin to, to preach reconciliation and forgiveness in the Congo and these refugee camps. And his friend, was, his friend was in his room sleeping the middle of the night. Middle of the night, feels this tug or this bump uh, that woke him up, and he looks over at his wife, and his wife's sound asleep. He's like, that's weird. So he looks over, and he's like, all right, well, he started thinking, and he felt this strong impression to pray for his friend Celestin. It wasn't one of those things that you and I might experience sometimes where it's like, hey, you should pray for someone because you woke up, and then you fall asleep praying, like two minutes later. <laughs> Three hours Three hours he couldn't go to sleep, and he prayed for his friend Celestin. And he called Celestin's 
wife, Bernadette, the next day and wanted to see if everything was okay. And, you know, she gets the call and is like, uh, well, kind of like, you know, I don't know. Is he okay? Have you heard something? You know, what is, what is the deal here? You know, and, and she's concerned and she finally gets a hold of him and gets in touch with him. And they had developed this ability to talk to each other in code because they didn't know who was listening in. So they developed this code to basically say if he was experiencing trouble uh, and, and possible danger, that they would talk about food. And that he would say, you know, something like, I've been eating well lately. And so on, in that phone call, he said to her, I've been eating a lot. You know, something like I've had a number of pizzas. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here, but not saying it verbally. And she's trying to hold it together on the other end, talking back to him. And he tells this story to these Ukrainian pastors trying to encourage them, look, you're going to face persecution. It's a reality. He was beaten for three hours straight. What's interesting, it was right around that time that his friend was called to pray for him and not fall back to sleep for three hours. And in those moments where he was sharing this powerful story, and he's going to be here in a few weeks. You don't want to miss it. In about three weeks, he's going to be here. We have him here pretty often. It's always amazing when he comes. And he shares this story, and at the end, he gives one of the most powerful statements you can hear. This is what he says about Jesus. He never promised you safety. He promised he'd be with you. He never promised you safety. He promised He'd be with you. To some of us, safety is our God. Some of us, peace is a good thing, and it should be a good thing. We should pursue peace, right? We should be peacemakers. But the reality of the gospel is that it will create enemies. It will create hatred. It will have people talking about you. It will have people putting you down. As we get closer to the end where Christ comes back, it's only going to increase. And the question is, how will you face it? How will you move on? Will you live a godly life that points people to the Father, even if they speak against you? Or will you cower back in fear? Just like that junior high kid who feels on fire, but then feels the pain and has to go back. What will you do with it? It's a great challenge. I ask that you consider it greatly. And for those that don't know Jesus, maybe you're sitting in this room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? Come on, come to Jesus. You're going to be persecuted. It does sound kind of bad, doesn't it? But... Like I said before, it's the most amazing relationship you could ever experience in your life. A walk with the Savior, a daily walk with the Savior, the Holy Spirit who comforts, helps, teaches you. Something that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine, and you are being called to the Savior today. And I pray that you'll respond. Let's pray. God, uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son who faced persecution head-on, faced certain death head-on, and faced it and went through it and rose from the dead. 
and the power that raised him from the dead exist in those that believe and that we can face persecution and difficulty with the power and joy that comes from a loving Savior who gave his life for us. I pray that we will be encouraged and challenged to face persecution, not go out and seek it, but at least face it with an attitude knowing that it may be something that you are bringing our way and we can face it with courage. I pray for those that don't know you, that haven't trusted you as their Savior, that you will even prick their heart right now to recognize the need for you to trust in you as their Savior, to confess their sins and turn to you and see you as the Messiah. I pray you bless our week as we abide in you, that we will face everything for your honor and glory and point people to the Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.